It's good to see you guys. Welcome to Sunday service. Uh, we are we are close, nearing the end of our series on drawing near to God. Uh, this is probably the second to last message of this series. And if you've been around for this series, I hope you have uh, find it edifying and find it encouraging and also find it convicting. Because this series is not about trying to get us to do more things for the Lord, but this series is really to help us help us have a gut check in our relationship with God. All right. You see, we, we, we have this tendency when it comes to religion to, to believe that religion is about some um, tenets of truth that we have to ascribe to, uh, to follow. But actually, in Christianity, it's not just about tenets of truth that we ascribe to, but it's a relationship that we are having with the living God. And that relationship is the central point of why we do what we do. And so... My, my encouragement during this series to you, at least my, 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 my word to you is this, is for you to ask the question, how is your relationship with God? Are you so caught up in doing things for the Lord rather than actually being with the Lord? Are you so caught up in making yourself outwardly look like you are, have religious piety and yet inwardly have no transformation of a person who has been in contact with God. You see, if you have been in contact with God, it is impossible for there not to be a transformation that happens in your life. When you come into contact with the living God, it changes you from the inside out. When you have a relationship with God, it literally conforms and molds you into who he is. I don't want you guys to be caught the day before, when you stand before the very face of God and you feel justified before him based on all the things you've done, the kindness you administered, the, 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 the good works you've done, the, the, the charity that you've been a part of, and you tell him, Lord, have I not done all these things in your name? Have I not prophesied, teach, do these things in your name? And the Bible says very clearly, in that day, Jesus will look at you and he says, depart from me, I've never known you you workers of lawlessness. Because it's not about just what you do, it's about your relationship with him. It's your being. And this whole series is really to help captivate that heart, to help us get into that place, to get into that rhythm of building this relationship with God. And we've talked about a lot of things. One of the ways in which we begin to build relationship is knowing your identity in Jesus. Knowing your identity in Jesus, being in a relationship with him so deeply that you believe him at his word when he says who you, when he tells you who you are, when he tells you that you are loved, that you are lovable, when he tells you that your existence is good, it is good that you exist. You take him at his word of your identity, not on what you've done, not on what you have, not on what people think about you, not on what your culture describes as your personal identity. You take him at his word because you've been in this relationship with him and you trust him and he says that before you've done anything, I've already loved you. Before you've accomplished anything, and I'm gonna tell you, you are lovable. Before you begin to question your life, I'm telling you, it is good that you exist. Being in relationship with God deeply enough that we recognize our identity in Him. Another thing we've talked about in addition to that, we're talking about going back to go forward. 
to be in relationship with God so deeply that you are able to trust him to rewrite the scripts of the curses of your life. There are things that have been passed down to you from your grandparents to your grandparents, from your great-grandparents to your grandparents to your parents to you. Things about how you see money, things about how you deal with relationship, things in how you engage in grief, things in how you express emotions. These things have been passed on to you. And you are the generation that has the choice to say, am I going to stop it right here, rewrite my script, trust God and say, you know what? This is what you say money it looks like. This is what you say how to express my emotion. This is how you call me to deal with sex. This is what you tell me about marriage. You rewrite your script for a new generation. You gotta go back in order to go forward to understand what's wrong with you and then place that before his word to trust him at his word and for him to rewrite that script going forward, you gotta have that deeper relationship if you're gonna see real transformation. In addition to that, we're talking about engaging in the dark night of the soul, where a lot of us, we go through a season of our life where God is silent. We go through this emotional darkness. We go through these trials and these traumas and these, these, these issues that just envelops us, saturates us, and makes us feel completely empty and lost. And we're wondering where God is, and we see this complete silence from him. And during the season, we want to run, we want to hide, we want to medicate. But what does God cause us to do? He, the Bible tells us in this relationship with him, as he's building it with you, he takes you into these moments of darkness. He is the one that drives you through the valley of the shadow of death. The Bible says his rod and the staff are meant to comfort us. And when he takes us in there, it's to do what? For you in that moment to trust him, to obey him, to be faithful to him, for you to continue to allow for him uh, to be a part of your life in such a way where you're, re where you're rebuilding this communion with him. You see, it's only when you are able to continue to trust and walk and be faithful, even when the emotions are not there, that's how the rewiring of your connection begins to happen. He who takes you into the darkness, he will take you out of it. But you gotta walk through that time. That's what it means to be in deep relationship with him. We talked about having a daily office with the Lord. Right? Giving five, 10 minutes throughout the day and just inviting him into that presence. Not just trying to throw something in the morning or do a quick prayer during lunchtime and then kind of close it up during the nighttime, but having this intimate, continuous time with the Lord, inviting him in five minutes at a time or more if you can. Just to invite him into that space, to acknowledge his presence, to have him there. You know, sometimes. I recognize this, I, I realized, at first when I was doing this, I don't like science that much, right? That's why like when, when my wife um, went on a honeymoon, like I, I can't deal with Maui. Maui is a very like serene place, right? I was like, I need, I need sirens. I need to know that someone's getting arrested by a cop or something, I need, I need to know these things that's happening. I cannot deal with the silence, right? There's something about me. And you know, and I, and I realized whenever you guys ever hang out with me, like if, I always try to say something, because I, I like, I feel like it's an awkwardness in there. So I always have to like continuously talk. People think I'm extroverted because I keep doing that, right? But reality is I'm very introverted and I think there's only a few people that I can like sit in the same room with and not say anything and actually have a good time with, right? And that's how it is in relationship with the Lord. When you can actually sit with your best friend and just in the silence of that and actually have a communion, that's how you know that relationship is being deepened. If you sit in that silence and you get all scared, right? Good, good indication that maybe you don't know God as much as you think you know him. 
right? Or you're not as close to him as you think you do, you are. And then last week we talked about what does it look like to grieve well? How does the master grieve? And we talked about being in relationship with him so deeply that you learn how to grieve the way he does. Instead of self-medicating, instead of running away to your drugs, your alcohol, your Netflix, your um, entertainment, your, uh, your, your video games, instead of blaming others, intellectualizing, denying it, how do you actually grieve in a way that, that brings transformation and resurrection? Okay, if you ever miss any of those, go back to those things. But today as we continue our series, I wanna talk about the fruit of growing in the spiritual maturity. One of the, one, one of the main fruits that comes out of the growth in spiritual maturity in this relationship with God is the love you give to your neighbor. It's your ability to love your neighbor. Okay? The fruit of how you've known that you are growing in actual spiritual maturity. I, I said love here, not tolerate, but to love your neighbor, not to tolerate their existence, but to love them. The way you know that you are growing in spiritual maturity, that you are drawing near to God, that there's a transforming work that's happening in your life is the way in which you love your neighbor. So three things I wanna share with us today. I wanna share with us the genesis of this love, what this love looks like, and who is my neighbor, right? If you wanna have a litmus test and then ask the question, have I really grown in spiritual maturity? Have I really come to know God deeply? Is he really doing a transforming work in my life? And the question you need to answer is, do I love my neighbor? Three things I wanna talk about, genesis of love, genesis of this love, what this love looks like, and who is my neighbor? Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. This is the, the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus was teaching this. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Let me start with 25, 28. 25, 28, there's this guy, he's a, he's a teacher of the law. He understands the scripture very well, the, the, the books of the Old Testament. And he wanted to ask Jesus a question, a very theological question. And Jesus answers this question with a huge story. But he starts with this statement here goes on and asks the teacher, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an age-old question. What must I do, O Lord, to enter into eternity? What must I do to know God the Father for all time? What must I do to actually be saved? What must I do, O Lord, to enter into eternal life, to inherit it? Verse 26, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. The genesis of this love, the way in which you know that you are growing in spiritual maturity, that you are developing and having a deep relationship with God, that you love your neighbor. And the genesis of this love is surrendering to God. Okay, let me tell you what I mean by that. 
It's surrendering to God. If you guys uh, want to follow along, I think they're going to put up the QR code here to let you guys see the notes as we go along. Back in the days, there were two schools of thoughts. There were two, like, you know, groups of people teaching uh, 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 something theological. Like, today will be the modern-day equivalent, like, Arminianism, Calvinism, right? Um, conservative, liberal, anything like that, right? So back then, they, they, they were called Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel, which is the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. These were two schools of thoughts going on in Jewish tradition, and they were basically trying to teach people what the word of law is, how they interpret it based on these two houses, right, and these two schools of thoughts. So in one school of thought, how do you inherit eternal life? One school of thought says this. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's what they would say. How do you inherit um, eternal life? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You must acknowledge who God is. And on the other one, the other school of thought was this. Love your God with all your heart, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so these two school of thoughts were reigning in the Jewish people at this time. And then they asked Jesus, How, what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? Teach it to me. And Jesus says what? The answer is to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Why did he say that? Because the other school of thought, hear, O Lord, hear, O God, or hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This school of thought merely acknowledges God, while the other school of thought surrenders to God. Okay? One school of thought acknowledges God, who he is, his presence, his reality, his omnipotence, his power, his truth. His, he, they acknowledge God, but the other school of thought that Jesus was really holding on to is that they surrender to God. And eternal life, Jesus is saying, is not found in the idea of acknowledging God. The Bible says even Satan and his demons acknowledge God and they shudder. It's not about acknowledging that God exists, that he is powerful, that he is out there, that he is doing his work. It is an act of surrendering to God. The genesis of love, loving your neighbor, must come from this picture of surrendering to God. The way into eternity is to surrender to God. The question I have to ask you today is very simple. Who or what have you truly surrendered yourself to? Because if you're going to say, I'm going to grow in relationship with God, I'm going to build some spiritual maturity, you have to ask the question first, am I really surrendering to God or have I surrendered to something else? Because whatever it is that you are surrendering to, that's what's going to dictate your life. So if you're not surrendering to God, you ain't going to be loving your neighbor here. You can, give, you can give the word that, you can, that you're loving your neighbor. You can even give the, 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 the outward showing that you're loving your neighbor. But are you really loving your neighbor? Surrendering to God is what drives us. Let me ask you guys some of these questions. What have you truly surrendered your, yourself to? Let's, let's, let's really do a gut check right now, right? About your life. Just listen real fast. When you surrender to something like power, how many of you guys think you surrender to power? So these are all old gods, same, I mean, new, uh, old demons, new names. They have new names for them. It's the same, you're worshiping something else besides God. You're surrendering something else besides God here. If you surrender to power, this means what? You're about success. You're about success. You value your life on that. You're about winning. You're about influence. And when you surrender yourself to power, a couple things happen. I want you guys to do a gut check. Your greatest nightmare is to be humiliated. 
right? If you're about success, if you're about winning, if you're about influence, the one thing that you are so afraid of is to be made a fool before somebody else. People around you, they feel used by you, that they exist to do your bidding or somehow to be manipulated so you get what you want. And your greatest problem emotionally is anger. All right? What are you surrendering yourself to? Who are you surrendering yourself to? If you're surrendering yourself to, for example, approval, that's love. You, you, you value love. You value affirmation. Not, not just value. It's your worth. It's your, it's, your, it's your essence. It's what you desire. Your love, affirmation, relationship. I can't live with so, without so-and-so. I need so-and-so in my life. Your greatest nightmare is what? Rejection. People around you feel smothered by you because you're constantly wanting their approval. Your greatest problem emotionally is what? Your cowardice. You're afraid to say anything to somebody. Why? Because you want their approval. Even you, when you know that what they're doing is wrong, you won't speak up. You won't, you won't make a statement because you're so afraid of what they think about you. What are you surrendering yourself to, church? Because the only way that you're actually gonna grow in deep relationship and spiritual maturity is first and foremost, you have to recognize what is it that you are really surrendering to. Is it power? Is it approval? Thirdly, is it comfort? Are you somebody who's surrendering your life to comfort? Meaning what, privacy? Lack of stress, you're all about, you don't wanna be stressed out, you don't wanna, you wanna be optimistic? You want the simple, relaxed life? Let me be, right? I don't wanna try hard, I don't wanna do anything, just, I just wanna coast through this season, coast through this time. Do you know what your greatest nightmare is? Stress, <laughs> You stress out, no things happen. People around you feel what? Neglected by you? Because you know, I, just, I don't want any drama. I just want to coast through this life. Your greatest problem emotionally is what? You're bored. Boredom. You don't want to be bored. How about this one, last one? Control. Have you surrendered to control? It's all about what I can do. Self-discipline, standards. Certainty. These are things, these are the things I have to do. These are the litmus tests. Your greatest nightmare is what? Uncertainty. When things are outside your control, you freak out. People around you feel what? Condemned by you. Nothing's ever good enough. Nothing's ever right. No one's ever gotten to the place where they're supposed to get to. And your greatest problem emotionally is you constantly worry. Does that sound like any of you guys? These are the very things the Bible calls sin. You know why it is? Because they take the place in your heart that only God can fill. You run towards these things like power, like approval, like comfort, like control, because they are trying to take God's place. These things, they, what they do, they seduce you, and you actually let them seduce you. You give in to them, right, by doing what? By rejecting God's word, by spurning God's authority, by denying God's character. You don't want to trust in what God has to say. You rather focus on power, approval, comfort, and control. Leading ultimately what? To your eventual separation from God? 
Not just physically, but ultimately eternally. My prayer is that when you stand before God, what you will hear is well done, my good, my faithful servant. Well done, because you're my servant. I knew you. Well done, because you listened, you obeyed, and you surrendered to me. Not depart from me, I've never known you. What have you surrendered yourself to? Because spiritual maturity, ultimately, the litmus test, the fruit of it, is how you love your neighbor. And the genesis of that love comes from surrendering to God. Surrendering to God means that you do what is asked of you even if you don't see the benefits or the results right away. That's what faith is. You trust in what God has to say. You trust in the object of your faith, not the quality of your faith. You trust in not how, 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 how much you can muster it up, but you trust in the one who can actually save you. To trust him on what he says about you, even if you don't see it for yourself. To trust him with writing the future scripts of your life, even if you grew up with a different paradigm. To trust him as he leads you through seasons of darkness. Even when everything in you tells you to run. To trust him that he promises that if you would actually rest and have the rhythm of rest, the rhythm of bringing him into your life, that you can get done in six days what you think you need seven days to do? It is a trust, a surrendering to God. What have you surrendered yourself to? If the fruit of spiritual maturity is learning to love your neighbor, and the genesis of that love comes from a life that is surrendering to God, my question for you is very simple. What have you surrendered to? Because if it is not God, you gotta repent. Because anything else outside of that will draw you further and further away. Because approval, power, comfort, control, all those things what they will do to you is that they will demand that you die to continue to hold on to it. It will suck the life out of you. It will ruin your relationship. It will cut you off from the reality of human connection. All for the sake, holding on to power, holding on to control, holding on to comfort, holding on to relationship. And yet only Christ dies to keep you. So you tell me, what is better to surrender to? The so, what, so the next question I have to ask is what, is the, what, is, what does this love look like? Okay? The genesis of, the, of this love is to surrender to God and if I'm to love my neighbor, what does this love look like? Is it just like, oh, I love you, right? Is it just like, yay, right? What does this love look like? Look at verse 29 and 35. And so this guy, this teacher of the law, right? He wanted to kind of justify himself. He wanted to like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, who's my neighbor, okay? But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So in reply, Jesus tells him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be coming down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. What does this love look like? Is it just mere acknowledgement? Is it just a mere toleration of their existence? What does the loving of your neighbor look like? If you're saying, I've surrendered to God, he is my sole authority, he is who I turn to, his word is what I follow, he is trusting in him, so... What does this love look like? This love looks like this. The expression of this love is to give up your rights. The willingness to give up your rights. The priest, okay, so let me, let me, let me give you some, um, some, some background idea, okay? So this road to Jericho, so Jerusalem to Jericho, is you have to go down this huge mountain. And when you go down this huge mountain, there's a very narrow way, and it's, it's, a very, it's like a, almost like an 18-mile journey, okay? And doing that, the, the narrow path, you can, a lot of people can, a lot of bandits hide in those areas, and they are, because it's, it's a very narrow place, and it's very uh, uh, desolate and isolated, and it's in the desert, it's a great place for um, bandits to hide out, jump uh, an unsuspecting person, steal all of his clothes, and leave him for dead. So when, when, when Jesus was telling the story, and he was sharing about a man being taken over by bandits or robbers. People are like, oh yeah, yeah, we get that. We've seen that happen a lot. We've heard those stories, right? We've heard those stories. It's like, it's like you saying like, oh, you know, what happens when you walk down Watts or Compton, right? They, you, those words, can, um, they bring forth images for you, thoughts to you, right? And so what happened to these, so as they were going down, so these priests and this Levite, these are people who are religious, people who are very in tune with their God, people who are very zealous in doing things for the Lord to make sure they keep their, their religious activities correct. They were coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, meaning that they were serving in the temple of God, and now they're coming back. Now as they came back, because the road is narrow, they obviously saw the dude, okay, lying there half dead, and what did they do? Okay, here's the thing. By law, by Jewish law, as a priest, you can't touch a body that you think might be dead, okay? By Jewish law, it will make you unclean. Now, why is that such an important thing for Jewish uh, priests? Because they were so focused on making sure that they don't mess things up with the Lord. They, they wanted to make sure that everything is right with God. So this, this ceremonial cleansing, this making sure that they, they're, they're, they're not defiled in any possible way, was part of their life tradition. And so when they saw this guy, every right to them, no one would have said anything to them. No, if, if, if like, yeah, I walked past a dead guy. Cool, I get it, right? No one would have said anything. And that's what they did. They, they literally saw that guy and they just walked past him because if they were to touch him, they would become unclean and therefore they can't perform their duties. They have to go through this whole ceremonial washing which takes forever, okay? So by right, they have every right to do that. The Samaritan, this guy, this guy was a, a um, this guy was somebody who was just, you know, journeying through. Samaritans and Jewish people, they don't get along. It's kind of like um, Republicans and Democrats don't get along. I'd rather leave you to die, right? You know, they don't get along at all. He had every right to ignore this guy. To like, you know what, that's my, that's the enemy of my people. These people I don't like. Walk past them. What did the Samaritan do? And when the Jewish people heard about the word Samaritan, it, con it conjured up a lot of like, emotional like, baggage for them. They really hate Samaritans. And so when Jesus uses Samaritan as the protagonist of the story, they were just mad. Like, the priest and Levi didn't do anything? Nope. Who did? The Samaritan. What did he do? He gave up his rights 
He didn't have to do any of this stuff. He gave up his rights, took the man, bandaged his wounds, took him to an inn, took care of him, gave extra money to the innkeeper to take care of this guy. Were they related? No. Did they know each other? No. He had no connection to this guy, but he gave up his financial right. He gave up his right of his time. He gave up the right of his energy. He gave up the right of his donkey that he had or his mule that he was carrying to put this guy on, to walk him to this inn. He gave up, he went out of his way for this guy. He gave up so many of his rights simply for what? To make sure the guy was okay. What does this love look like? It's not a mere toleration of people. I think a lot of us, when we talk about love, we're just, I'm gonna tolerate you. I acknowledge your existence, but doesn't mean I have to really connect with you. When scripture talks about love, it talks about this picture of laying down your rights for somebody else. And who is the master in the picture of this? Jesus Christ, who though in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself into human likeness, taking on flesh, coming down as a man and, does, and did what? Became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He didn't have to. Jesus didn't have to come down here. Jesus didn't have to do any of these things. He gave up his right for the sake of others who considered him his, their enemy, by the way. And so when we begin to think about giving up our rights, it means this. It means to listen to somebody, to understand them, rather than to, to demand to be heard. Listen, giving up your rights means to respect the differences of others without the need to change them. Giving up your rights means to give, up pe to give people room to make mistakes rather than just correcting them every single time. Giving up your rights is to be willing to be seen as wrong than to establish your rightness at the cost of the relationship. Giving up your rights means to give up what you're due without the need to demand your own personal rights. The expression of this love is the ability to give up your rights. Let me ask, let me, let me just ask you this question. You know, we, we talk a lot about loving people we talk about that, that's the trait of a Christian, to love people. But we really do a very bad job of practically doing that. We aesthetically understand it, abstractly understand it in our mind, but the actual action of it is not there. We're not willing to give up our time, our energy. We do it for people we like. We do it for people that we know. We do it for people that we can get something out of. We do it for quid pro quo. We do it if, we get, if, if, if it benefits us in some way. But how often do we actually give up our rights where it doesn't benefit, goes out of our time, out of our way, out of our energy, for even someone we don't even know? And yet we claim as a church and as a people to be so loving. What we should be claiming is, I am an immature child before this God. And the last thing, the question is, who is my neighbor then? Okay, the genesis of this love is surrendering to God. What does this love look like? 
giving up your rights? And who is my neighbor? Who is to consider to be my neighbor? And I think I answered it for you already. The neighbor you are to love encompasses all, including your enemy. All right, look at verse 36, 37. As Jesus closes up, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The teacher of the law, he didn't want to say the Samaritan because he had a very bad connection with the Samaritan. It's like asking a Jew, like, you know, and using a Nazi, a Nazi German. You know, like, hey, you know, the guy who just burned all your people down, right? Who was, a good, who was a good neighbor to this guy? For them to even say that word is crazy. For your parents, if you're of enemies to set, you know, to say that the, the Viet Cong was the one that showed mercy. That's just out of, the, out of the picture, right? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Who is our neighbor? It encompasses everyone, including your enemy. The one that you don't get along with, the one that you can't tolerate, the one that you always fight with, the one that you always find yourself in an argument, the one that demeans, looks down, even hurts you. Why is it that so many times the people of God pray for the forgiveness of the ones who torture them? Why is it the people of God, why did Jesus himself say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Because that is the act and that is the realization of somebody who has grown into spiritual maturity that you can actually pray for them, that you want their good, that you want benefit, you want them to repent, you want them to grow, you want them to change, you want God to save their soul rather than just to condemn and hurt and watch them be punished. How do you see people? Even the biggest enemy is considered a neighbor. And that's hard, I know that's hard for a lot of us. I mean, we're like, ah, you know, I'll just, I'll just scrape under the rug, I'll deal with people, I don't have to like, you know, actually engage with them, you know, whatever. The Bible says, bless those who persecute you. Do not repay evil for evil. Ultimate comes down to this. If we were enemies of God, if you and I were enemies of God, and he chose to give his life for us, then who are you to think that you are somehow unable to forgive your enemies? Who are you to think for a moment that somehow you are better than somebody else when the God of the universe had to die for you? How, how arrogant is that? Don't you guys recognize how the arrogance of that mentality? The inconsistency of that? Well, here you are, you're, you're talking about, I gotta love my people, I gotta love people, I gotta love people. When you actually, actually have to love people, you don't do anything about it. And yet you said, Christ died for me. You acknowledge it. You acknowledge it, but you never really surrendered to it. Because surrendering to God results in a spiritual maturity that loves your neighbors. That loves your neighbors. The way in which we do this is we look to the cross of Jesus Christ in order to love our neighbors. 
my prayer for you, if you really want to know, am I, am I really mature? Am I, am I really close with God? Do I, do I feel like this is a transition that's happening? It's a very simple question. How well do you love your neighbors? How well do you love somebody who is, how, how much are you willing to give up your right for somebody who may be even considered to be your enemy? You may ask the question, what am I really surrendering to? Am I really surrendering to God or just to me? This is a really tough question because ultimately your eternal destiny weighs in the balance of it. I'm a true believer, guys, right? It's one or the other. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no coming up to God one day. It's like, ah, I, did my, I, I think I did it, right? Do you actually surrender to God or not? Telling you to love better is not enough, okay? You need practical skills to do it. I know this, okay? Because I've told you guys to love people for many years. Now, I don't have time to actually go through the whole application process of it. I'll give you four things that you need to think about. Uh, here's my plug for the word of the week. This week, I will unpack these four things if you want to watch it, all right? But the way in which you, or the skills in which you have to begin the process of learning to love your neighbor, okay? Learning to speak and to listen, right? A lot of the reasons why you have enemies is because you deal with conflicts. And, and one of the reasons you have conflict is you don't know how to speak and you don't know how to listen. Showing genuine respect for this person. Having respect for them. Not to approach them with this holier-than-thou attitude, smarter-than-thou attitude, greater-than-thou attitude. Stop with the assumptions. They're acting this way because of that. This is who they are. Clarify the expectations that they have for you and you have for them. These are very practical things. I want to, uh, again, I'll, I'll unpackage it during the word of the week. So tune in for that, right? But today, all I want to share is this. The big picture. If you're going to grow in your spiritual maturity, the greatest sign that that's happening is what? Do you actually love your neighbor? Do you love people? Do you love them? Is your love drawn from a surrendering to God, not acknowledgement of God, but a surrendering to God? Are you willing to live a life practicing giving up your rights, your time, your energy, your resource? Are you willing to love even those hardest to love? Your in-laws. <laughs> that friend who stabbed you in the back. Right? That horrible boss, the coworker, the one who wronged you at church. Are you willing to love even your enemies? How is your love, church? How are you doing in that? Let's bring it to the Lord. Let's pray.